Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Third service wins. You guys must have got to the donuts before service. That's good. If you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. As you saw in the video earlier, if you'd take that white card in the seat in front of you, if you'd fill that out for us. Uh, we love that because it allows us to stay connected to you, but my favorite part of those cards is genuinely when you put a prayer request on the back of that card and you turn it in at the offering time at the end of the service, uh, on Saturday mornings, uh, our elders, we gather together and we just pray over those. And so we just welcome you to write a request on that, drop it in there at the end of the service. Hey, you're here on a great Sunday. It's our celebration Sunday. This is the grand opening of this facility. And uh, we have been working together as a church, uh, following God's lead, and he has been so incredibly gracious with us, and the people at New Hope have been so incredibly generous. And so we want to pause on a Sunday morning and just express gratitude. We understand that the building's just a tool, but it is a gift, and God was gracious and generous to allow us to have this, and so we're very excited this morning. That's why we brought Titus Donuts, because we know at church we're supposed to prepare you for heaven, and that's what they're going to serve there. And so we got Titus Donuts, some coffee. Um, Our elders are out there. They'd love to give you a tour of the whole facility, even the parts that are normally secure. Uh, The elders, if you're with an elder, you can get a tour of the whole place. They can kind of explain things to you. Uh, We're just excited. God's been good, and we want to recognize that. And so thank you for your generosity and commitment to this initiative. You can learn more about the REACH initiative and the other components of that initiative. There's a table out here with some booklets uh, out in the new lobby, and you can go ahead and grab those. Uh, We're just grateful for it. Now, hey, in addition to celebrating um, the facility that God has blessed us with and the generosity of our people and just kind of being here together as a church to have a moment of celebration, um, you guys know a couple weeks ago our student minister... Jed Fuller, who's over the 6th to 12th grade students, um, left our staff and joined uh, the staff at Mount Pleasant Christian Church, and he is going to be planting a church in downtown Indianapolis with our blessing. We are so excited for him and Adrian and the work they're going to do. But about a month and a half ago, when Jed brought this to us, we began to pray about who the Lord might lead us to. And so after praying, we kept coming to this one name. We made the call, began the interview process, and we're just excited on Celebration Sunday to announce to you our next student minister will be Ryan King. Uh, Ryan grew up here at New Hope. Um, His dad, Mike, uh, was involved here years ago as well. Uh, Ryan and Catherine are from Lebanon. Um, They moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and are now serving in Haiti as missionaries. And um, so he'll be joining our staff in July, but Ryan and Catherine and their little guy, Conrad, made a video to introduce themselves to our church. And so take a moment. Uh, We want you to meet Ryan, Catherine, and Conrad. Greetings, New Hope. Hi, my name is Ryan King. This is my wife, Catherine, and our little guy, Conrad. And we just want to say hello. We want to tell you how excited we are that we're going to be able to work with youth in both the middle school and high school ages as I take the new role as student minister at New Hope this summer. We are currently serving at Sunlight Academy in port au Haiti, where I teach fourth grade and Ryan teaches high school. We wish that we could say hello to you in person, but we are currently finishing out the school year before we come home this summer to serve alongside you. Our time at Sunlight has given us a lot of perspective and a lot of joy in working with middle school and high school students. Um, Before we tell you a little bit more about that, we really just wanted to tell you a little bit more about our story so that you know where we come from. And our story really starts at New Hope. Um, That's where a place where I was attended when I was a, a youngster. I was baptized there at New Hope. And both my wife and I are from the Lebanon area. We both graduated from Lebanon High School. 
and went, and eventually went to Indiana University down in Bloomington, graduated from there, and then soon after got married. Uh, once we started Married Lives, we lived in Lexington, Kentucky for three or four years. While we were there, we attended Southland Christian Church, and it was during our time at Southland that we attended a mission trip to Haiti, uh, Sunlight Academy, Academy in Fort Pay. And it was during that trip that we really felt God was leading us to something different from our normal lives where we were interested in business and starting a family. Fast forward a year, we were teaching at Sunlight Academy. I was teaching in middle school and high school, and Catherine was teaching in fourth grade. And now we've been here three years. We really enjoyed our time. We feel as though God is leading us to new hope so that we can begin um, teaching and working with the youth there to ultimately show the world who Jesus is and what he looks like. We are really excited about returning to New Hope and to grow roots in the New Hope community. Please be praying for us as we make our transition. We look forward to seeing everyone soon, but for now, goodbye from sunlight. So we're very excited that Ryan's going to be joining our staff. Uh, I think everyone's excited except for Conrad. He didn't look, uh, <laughs> little guy didn't look too engaged there on the screen, but they're such a cool family. Uh, they come from a great family, and I've got three sons now and a daughter. My youngest was born a couple weeks ago, and um, I've said it this way. I, I just, when, when I think about Ryan discipling my boys, uh, I get excited. Okay, so Ryan's going to be um, just a great addition to the church family here, and we're just excited. So we want you to, uh, to meet him and be praying for he and Catherine as they transition out of Haiti and back to the States. Hey, let's pause for a moment. God's people should be people of prayer. And uh, we've got a lot to be thankful for. So let's have uh, just a moment to go before our Heavenly Father to thank Him for how good He's been. Father, thank You for being so good to us. Father, thank You for the generosity of the people of this church. Thank You ultimately for the generosity that You've displayed to us in Jesus as we as a church family want to pursue Him with everything we've got. Father, thank You for how You've been moving in my own life and the lives of the people in this church. Thank you for how you've moved in Ryan and Catherine's life and how you're leading them back here to New Hope as well. Father, we feel uh, your presence and we feel uh, how you've displayed your favor on this church. And for that, we're just grateful. We just want to pause, God, and take a moment to say thank you for being so good. Father, as we meet this morning and we open your word, uh, this is a big deal. And we just pray, Father, that you would speak clearly to us in your word that you would penetrate our hearts with your truth, that we might leave here different than when we arrived, ready to live intentionally on mission. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 called Messy Relationships. And uh, as we get started today, um, I was reminded of something this week. Back when I went to college, uh, as a freshman in college, um, I got to this campus. I grew up in South Florida, and I went to college in Knoxville. And when I got on campus in Knoxville, uh, I was a little bit disoriented. I was a young guy. I was the first time ever away from home. And I'm there on campus. I'm intimidated by a lot of things. And uh, I get somewhat of a rhythm going after the first few months and decide I'm going to try out for the basketball team. And, and so I tried out for the basketball team, and I made the team. And uh, the, the team had some, when I joined the team, the team had a group of guys on the, that were kind of established. They'd played for a few years together, they had chemistry, they had relationship, and then I'm this young freshman, along with one other freshman joining the team, and just kind of feeling intimidated and like not worthy. Um, there was one guy on the team in particular, he was kind of larger than life, it, um, he was a guy I really looked up to, his name was Tim, 
Uh, I didn't look up to him only because he was 6'8", uh, though he was a big dude, uh, but he was like an All-American. And the year before, he was a finalist for Player of the Year, and so you're on a team with a guy like this, it's just like, ah, uh, it's a big deal. I remember that uh, after uh, we made the team, we had a couple practices, and then we left on our first away trip, and I think we were headed to, uh, I, I believe, Pennsylvania, and we stopped to eat uh, on the way uh, in Tennessee. And so we, we leave, we stop for food, and we're going to hit the road, and we are... Um, Sitting at a, uh, we get out of the bus to go into the restaurant, and I'm always last, right, because they do things to freshmen, that's something to talk about later, uh, but you never get treated really well, and so I'm the last one into the restaurant, and the only seat with our group that's available is next to guess who. Uh, so I go, and I sit next to Tim, and I'm just intimidated, <laughs> and uh, I'm so nervous, and I'm not making this up. We're all wearing brand new Nike sweats that we got as a, uh, for being on the team. And I go to reach for something at this table, and I spilled an entire cup of sweet tea right in Tim's lap. And I'm not talking like it fell on the table and drizzled over. The cup fell off the table and flipped over right into his lap, completely soaked him in real sweet tea. So it was like sticky. I don't know if you guys know what real sweet tea is like up here, but uh, in the South, sweet tea is really sweet, and it was sticky, and it was all over him. And so he jumps up, and he goes right into the restroom to get cleaned up. And man, the other guys let me have it. Like, they literally, they're just like, hey, dude, that's it. You might as well just be the equipment manager now. You're never going to play. <laughs> and I just over and over and over again, they just kept dishing it. And it was like, oh, I felt so bad. So I shut down. And uh, the, the rest of the trip, I was just quiet. And I'm like, man, I've ruined it. I don't even want to be in college. But, and I'm, we get home, and I'm a couple days later from that trip, and I'm walking across the gym, and all of a sudden I hear Tim. He's like, hey, Rob, where are you? He comes running up to me, and when I turn around, he's got a coat in his hand, and he's got this jacket, and um, I'm like, okay, what's going on? He goes, hey, I was praying for you, and I went ahead and bought you a winter coat, because you're not too bright to, because it was starting to get cold, something I hadn't experienced. He said, you're not too bright to be walking around out here in a tank top, dude, so I got you a winter (laughs) coat, and so he got me a coat, and I was like, dude, thank you, and I'm so sorry for spilling that sweet tea. And he's like, it's not a big deal. I'm so glad you're on the team. And he did nothing but encourage me. And so all the garbage the guys gave me was not a reflection of, of him. And I learned a valuable lesson that day, that your talent, that your talent can do a lot for you. Your talent can make you an All-American. Your talent can make you runner-up for player of the year. It can make you the big man on the team. But your character, that's what really makes a difference in the lives of other people. It's your character. You see, this is the story of the church in Corinth. Corinth is a fascinating city. It sat between two bodies of water. It was only four miles wide in length, and it had only actually been established as a city like a few generations before this letter was written by Paul. And what that means is this, that there wasn't people that had been in Corinth for long periods of time. Nobody had set their roots there. There was no long-standing families with lots of traditions and power and clout. You see, Corinth was a city of of commerce, and people had to travel through it, and when they did, they started businesses, and they stayed there for a little bit of time, and then they'd move on, and the city naturally attracted people that wanted to succeed. I mean, that's why you'd go to Corinth, because there was so much going on, so many people moving in and out. That was the city you'd go to if you wanted to make it. Very similar. Think about this. If someone grows up in the United States in a small town, and they have some talent. And they decide, I want my talent, I want to make it. They go to one of our bigger cities. They'll go to New York City or they'll go to Los Angeles and they'll try to take that talent and they'll try to make it. That was Corinth. They knew that if they had a little bit of talent and they got to this city, there was a good chance that they would make it. They would be successful. 
And so naturally, you plant a church in a city like this, and you're going to attract lots and lots of talented people. I mean, the people that lived in Corinth were people that were, they were talented, they, were, uh, they had ambition, they, were, they had a lot of drive, they were go-getters. Um, and so naturally, the church is formed. It's going to have a lot of talented, driven, ambitious people. And so over time, the church begins to look a little bit like the culture. Lots and lots of talent. And so then the Apostle Paul begins to notice that they're relying quite a bit on their abilities, that their behavior and their talent, those are great things, but they're lacking in some things. And so he begins to write this letter, and we get to chapter 13, which is oftentimes misquoted in weddings. It was read in my wedding, so there's nothing wrong with it. But we read 1 Corinthians 13 in weddings a lot. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. And we read it because it's like, oh, it makes me feel good. That's not what Paul had in mind when he wrote it. You see, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, especially the 13th chapter, this part of the letter, he was addressing people who, you're good at this, and you're good at this, and you're good at this, but you're not paying attention to the most important things, which is the character development, which is who you're actually becoming. You might be successful, and you might be talented, and you might be really good at some things, but if you're not careful, you're going to succeed in things that don't really have any significance. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, he begins to lay out for them, hey, you might be good at prophecy and leadership, and you might be good at all these different things, but if you don't have character, if you don't have love developed in your heart, you're nothing. And then in verses 4 and following in the chapter, he begins to spell out what those traits are that they need to allow God to work in their life. So there was a difference for Paul. Following Jesus wasn't about changing your behavior, it was about transforming your heart. You see, for Paul, it wasn't just about do this in order to be a good follower of Jesus. It was about become this and allow the Lord to work through you, in you, and through you as he transforms your heart and really makes you and forms you into who he needs you to be in order to do what he needs you to do. You see, the actions are a byproduct of the transformation of the heart. God needs to change who you are, not just what you do. And so Paul begins to write this out. It's a a warning. D.L. Moody had a great quote. He said it this way. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. You see, your greatest fear in your life should not be that you would fail at something that you're talented at or that you had ambition towards, but that you would find great success in something that has no eternal significance whatsoever. I think this is what really makes our relationships messy. When you think about your friendships, when you think about your marriage relationship, your parenting, uh, your coworkers, your employees. When you think about the way you relate to other human beings, I think sometimes we begin to define what a healthy relationship looks like and we go after that. And it becomes a behavior thing. Like we need to do this in order to become that. And that's what really messes with our relationships because I set my expectation of success upon the other person in the relationship and if they don't meet it, it creates tension. Or my own expectation of myself inside this relationship, and if I don't meet it, it creates tension. And so Paul begins to address, this is how relationships get healthy. Friendships, marriage relationships, whether you're dating somebody, no matter what the relationship is, Paul addresses who we need to be, because that's what has a profound impact on who we relate to. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I don't have love, I gain nothing. You see, for Paul, he's actually telling the Corinthians what they're pretty good at. He's actually explaining, like, hey, you're good at this, you've got strong faith, and you're good at these things, but you're missing love. You're missing this character trait that is expounded on in verses 4 through 7 that really change all of those things. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I've fallen into the trap of, of speaking Christianese and doing all the Christian things and listening to the Christian music and being the perfect Christian guy that I need to be only to realize my heart wasn't in it and it was all about my behavior. It's just about what I was doing instead of who I was becoming. And so Paul says, hey, you're good at this. You're talented at this. You've got this down. But you need to really focus on who you're becoming, not just what you're doing. Now, um, the kindness aspect. David talked about patience last week. He says, the first thing is love is patient. Man, that was such a good sermon. He said, love cannot be forced. It can only be offered. Right? It can't be forced upon somebody. It can only be offered. And and how we need to view other people patiently through the lens of the, the eyes of the Father. You view them as a child of God. You will treat them differently, patiently. But now Paul, he, he moves on to a different descriptor. And he says, not only is love patient, but love is kind. And I really struggled with this. And I think it's because I've had a false understanding of what biblical kindness is. I've always viewed kindness as this action that I did, not a person that I was becoming. Right, And so if my wife and I, right, if we were to tell you this, if, if um, we were going through a dry season in our marriage where we weren't connecting the way that we would want to or really should be connecting, and you're like, well, I've never had that. Yes, you have. You just lie about it. But if we're honest, we all have these seasons in our lives where like, it's just, man, it's like there's a distance between us. right? I would always view that as, all right, what do I need to do as far as kindness to help her not feel that way anymore? What do I need to buy her on the way home? Or what do I need to do when I get home? What diaper to change? What kid I need to address? What homework I need to help with? I, I would, it'd always be about what I was doing and not necessarily about who I was becoming. And so, honestly, for the longest time, I've struggled with this. Personally, as a follower of Jesus, what does love is kind mean to the Christian? Because it has a profound impact on everybody around you. In fact, in the second century, Christians, this comes from the early church father, Tertullian, and he says Christians were often called Christiani, which means uh, Christ people. That, that was their title. That's what they were called living in the second century. But what he noticed was that the Christians living in communities were having such a profound impact on the people around them that the, the pagans, he calls them the pagans, it's just a, simply a term, that people that weren't Christians, that had Christians living around them, were so profoundly impacted by the kindness of the Christians that they renamed them. I mean, think about that that the culture around you would experience the kindness that you display to them because of who you're becoming to the point in such a profound way that they would label it. And they said, it's not Christiani, it's Crestiani now, which means people made up of meekness, mildness, and above all, kindness. So the kindness of the Christians had so impacted the culture around them that they had to title it. They had to say, you... You're more than just people that follow Jesus. They didn't understand that, but they just said, your kindness is so contagious. And this is why I think Paul says this. Paul's constantly coming back to, you need to stay connected to Jesus. 
He says, why? Because the primary relationship in your life should be the connection that you have with the Lord because every other relationship is affected by it. Paul comes back to this over and over and over again in his letters. If you read his writings in the New Testament, he is constantly saying, if you want to have that kind of an impact on the the world around you, you must stay connected to Jesus. And so in Ephesians 4, he'll say things like this. He says, be kind, same word, be kind to one another. In every relationship that you have in your life, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? What's your motivation for that? Because God, in Christ, forgave you. So he says, all, like, I don't know if you know this, but all religions, all major world religions, teach their followers to be kind. They do. But the uniquely distinct feature of biblical kindness is that our kindness is a response to the kindness bestowed on us by God. And Paul constantly reminds us of that. You're kind because he was kind first. You display kindness to the people that you're in relationship with because of the kindness you see displayed on the cross. That when you didn't deserve it, God allowed his son to die for you. Because here's here's what Paul is trying to get at. Every other relationship in your life will be affected by the primary relationship in your life. I want you to think about that for a minute. Every relationship that you have in your life is affected by the primary relationship in your life. Whether you follow Jesus or you're a Christian or not, every single relationship is affected by the primary relationship. So here's what I mean by that. If the primary relationship in your life is you, your own comfort, your own interests, uh, what you think life should look like, your 401k, your retirement plan, your savings account, your hobbies, what you want, if the primary interest in your life is you, that the other people around you will feel the impact of that self-centeredness. Whether you hide it well or not, people will feel the effect of the primary relationship in your life. If the primary relationship in your life is the relationship you have with your career, I mean, you're just a hard worker, you just want to succeed, you have ambition, you have talent, like the Christians in Corinth, you're just going after this because you have the talent and the ability to do it. If that's the primary goal in your life, is your career and your future goals, then the other relationships in your life will feel the impact of the loyalty you have to that primary relationship. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard, doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue these things and actually use the talents God gave you, it simply means that that shouldn't be the primary goal of your life. Look, if the primary goal of your life is your spouse or your kids, everyone else around you is going to see that and feel that. You're like, what's wrong with that? It doesn't last. And the moment there's a mistake or a failure, you've put all of your attention into something that cannot succeed. And so Paul says, no, your primary relationship should be Jesus. And when you're connected to Jesus, when you have a relationship with Jesus, then all of the other relationships in your life, they will feel the effect of the connection you have to your heavenly Father. And so I've found this to be true in my life. As a follower of Jesus, whenever I've had friction or conflict in a relationship with another Christian, with my wife, with my kids, every time, if I'm honest about it, I can step back and say, I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't been pouring over the Word of God in this recent time. I haven't been spending time in prayer, not just for me, but for this other person. And the conflict comes. And most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, the conflict, the messiness of the relationship is because I'm not connected to the Father. And how can I expect God to be working through me if I'm not spending time with Him? And so the other question would be, how can I expect to show the kindness of God without being connected to God? Every single relationship in your life will be affected by the primary relationship in your life. 
And so maybe this week you need to spend some time just really evaluating, is my primary relationship in life my connection to my Heavenly Father? Because if it's not, the people around you could tell you. They could tell you. If you were to sit and have an honest conversation with some of the closest people in your circle, and you would ask them, hey, what's the most important thing to me? They'll tell you if you give them permission to. Some of them might be too scared. But would you give someone permission? What's the most important thing to me? What's your career, right? Well, it's your family. Well, it's your retirement. Well, it's your work ethic. Well, it's your image. Well, fill in the blank. There's been seasons in my life where that blank has not been filled in with Jesus, and it's the reconnection to Jesus that has allowed me to show the kindness that I need to show to the people that are around me. And Paul continually comes back to this, and I love it. And one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is in the book of Philippians. You can open your Bible there or turn in your Bible app to Philippians We're going to look at it here in a moment. When I was in graduate school, um, when I was in seminary, my wife and I took a Greek class together where we translated the book of Philippians. And we're in this class, and the professor would stand up in front of us every single class period, and he would read the entire book of Philippians to us in one sitting every class period. So we'd come to class, and yet again, we're going to sit there, and he's going to read through Philippians, the whole letter, without stopping, every time. This is years ago, and it's had a profound impact on me. Because every time he got to the passage that I'm going to read you, he got choked up. All year. All year. He'd read it over and over again. He'd get to this part and he would get choked up. And I think in this passage we're going to read, the Apostle Paul defines what it means to have biblical kindness. What does it mean that love is kind? Well, I think Paul explains what it means here in Philippians chapter 2. And so if you turn over there, we're going to look at verses 1 and following. He says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if you're connected to Jesus, is what he's saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he hits us with this. I love this explanation of kindness. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I mean, think about what, what the Christians who were pursuing this would have heard, what we need to hear from this. But in humility count others. And by others, it's everybody on the receiving end of every relationship that you're in. Count others as more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, I don't know about you, but it's rare when I can get that right. When I'm looking at other people and I'm like, I actually think I care more about you than I care about myself. That I want, I want the connection with this person to be so important. And so I want to form the way I talk. And I want to form my motives and my intentions with this other person. Even if they've hurt me or caused me harm, my goal is to get them closer to Jesus. I've said this to you guys over and over again uh, since I've been here at New Hope. Is this the goal of every relationship in your life? Every single one of them. The number one goal should be to get that person closer to Jesus. That when they're done being in relationship with you, whenever that might be, that they're closer to the Lord for having known you. I mean, that is what it means to live intentionally. And so Paul says the way you do that is to show kindness. The way you show kindness is you do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, you consider others more important than yourself. Put the interests of other people above your own. Imagine how that would have an impact in your marriage. If you started coming home and instead of waiting for your expectations to be met, you walked in the door thinking, how can I serve and love the people in this house? How can I put their interests above my own? I know I'm tired. I know I had a full day of work, but they had full days, and they might have had a bad day. I'm going to walk in the door, and instead of with expectation, I'm going to walk in the door, and I'm going to serve and place their interests above my own. 
What would that look like in the friendships that you have expectations over, that you think a friend should do this or shouldn't do that? What would it look like if instead you just said, I'm just going to put their interests above my own? And I'm just going to try my best to get them closer to Jesus and display the kindness the Father has displayed to me. And this isn't easy. So I, there's three things. I want to give you three characteristics of biblical kindness and one action point for you to walk away with, okay? Now, these have been challenging me all week, and I hope they challenge you. Uh, they're, they're right out of the, the scriptures. The, kind, the, the concepts are right out of the scriptures. So the number one thing is this. Kindness, biblical kindness, is sacrificial. It will always require something of you because kindness is really never about you. It's always about the person who's receiving what you're giving. And so when you receive it from the Father and you give it to other people and all the relationships in your life, it's always sacrificial. It's always going to cost something from you because you're not receiving anything. You, you can't be truly kind to somebody and have an ulterior motive that they're going to reciprocate it. It's No, it's sacrificial. I will give of myself for your betterment. Hey, and you see this all throughout the scriptures, people sacrificially giving to the betterment of other people. Maybe, look, I'll tell you what. If I were to ask you, tell me somebody in your life, and don't do this, no nudging, no pointing, uh, who you would say is really kind of self-centered, and their goal is themselves. You could probably explain to me why, because it's had an impact on you. And if I were to reverse that and say, tell me somebody who has sacrificially displayed kindness to you in your life, it would come to you. Because it has such a profound impact. Kindness must be sacrificial because it always requires something of us. I was reading this past week about a Dr. Murray Harris. Several years ago, Dr. Harris taught at the Trinity Evangelical School, Divinity School in Chicago. It's a really prestigious school, and uh, he, he was a really well-known professor, wrote a lot of books, did a lot of work. But he was forced into an early retirement when his wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and her condition got worse. And so the doctor said, the best thing for you guys is to go home. And so they left Chicago and moved back to New Zealand. When they got to New Zealand, her condition started to get worse and worse, and it required that he be a full-time caregiver for her. So not only in early retirement, but he wasn't able to do anything else for the rest of her days except love her and to take care of her 100% of the time. And in September of 2010, he wrote this about his wife's condition. He said, I feel that I am privileged to be a full-time caregiver. His wife, Jennifer, saddened that he was sacrificing so much to care for her. She said this. She said, I wish that you could just get on with your work. And get on with your life. And Dr. Harris responded this way. He said, caring for you is my work. And loving you is my life. Everything else is a bonus. See, true kindness is sacrificial. It always cares about the interests of the other person. It always cares about how to make the other person better. The second thing is this. Kindness, it's difficult. It always will be. Because it involves people. <laughs> people will hurt you. And they're not always going to show gratitude for the kindness that you display to them. See, in this very same passage, the Apostle Paul goes on to display the greatest act of kindness that ever took place in the history of the world. He said the creator of the universe, God the Father, sent his one and only son. And how did the world respond to that kindness? They crucified him. Do you think that the world is going to respond always in a better way than that to your kindness when you display it to them? You will display sacrificial kindness to people that will return your kindness with their hurt because hurting people hurt other people. They don't know how to receive kindness because it hasn't been displayed to them because Christ followers are different. 
Because Jesus' followers make a difference in the world that they go into, and people don't know how to receive that kind of kindness, and so they respond with their hurt and their pain. People will not always give back. People will create conflict, and they will create drama, and it will be difficult and painful and hard when you display kindness. And God says, continue to be kind, because his kindness displayed through his people is the remedy for conflict in the world. In his meditations on 1 Corinthians 13, John Chrysostom, who's one of the early church fathers, actually called him Golden Mouth because of the beauty of his expository preaching. All right, so he had this awesome nickname. And in writing about 1 Corinthians 13, he said this. He said, in order to appease and extinguish that fire of anger in the world, we display kindness. When we're kind, we soothe and we comfort. And by doing so, we cure, and we sore, cure the sore and heal the wound of passion. In a world of conflict and difficulty and pain and and messy relationships that cause pain and hurt in our lives, the greatest remedy for all of the mess is the kindness that God has shown us through Jesus dying for our sins and given us the ability to show other people through the Holy Spirit living in us. So kindness. Kindness is sacrificial. Kindness is difficult. And the third thing is this. Kindness, it's not an invitation to be passive. It's not. It's an invitation instead to consider others as more important than ourselves. When you're kind, I used to wrestle with this. I used to think that kindness meant I had to be a doormat. Let other people get their way because that's a kind thing to do. And many of you might not say it that way, but you sure do act that way. We, we think that by being passive, we're actually being kind. And the Bible never ascribes to that. Now, there's this awesome story in the Old Testament of, of how this plays out. King David, he's king over all of God's people. And in, in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 11... 2 Samuel chapter 11, he sends his people off to war. He sends his people off to war. And they go off to war and they don't bring, they don't bring their king. And that never happened in that day. A king never sent his people to war without going with them. But he did. And then we find that he's on a balcony and he's looking over his kingdom, relying on his talents and his abilities, not his character. And he sees a woman bathing. She's attractive, so he stares at her and he begins to lust over her. Then he invites her up into the king's quarters and he sleeps with her and he impregnates her. Now she's going to have a baby. And now he has to cover up his tracks. And so what he does, he goes and gets her husband, Uriah, and says, I'm going to bring him home and then they can be together and he can be the dad of the baby. But Uriah's character was a lot more important to him than his talent. And so he withstood that temptation. So now David doesn't know what to do and so he puts Uriah on the front line and her husband's killed. And now he takes her in as his wife and takes care of the child and thinks everything's good until one of his friends did the kindest thing he could have possibly done. Nathan shows up on the scene in the very next chapter and he walks in. And here's what's fascinating about Nathan. David needed to be called out on his sin, but the kind way to do it is to communicate in a way that the other person receives it, not just so you feel better about saying it. And so Nathan shows up on the scene and he evaluates who he's going to be talking to, which is a lost art in our world. And he looks at King David, he says, the best way for me to communicate what needs to be heard is to tell him a story. And so he tells him a story about a man who took something that wasn't his. And David's so enraged by it, he says, that man should be put to death. And then he says, David, you're that man. That's what you did. And it was the kindness of Nathan that led to the repentance of David. Not his passiveness, but his kindness and calling his friend out on his sin so now the Lord could work and, and, and begin to develop the character of David again. See, friends, being kind to somebody is not an invitation for you to be passive, but to be bold and loving 
and to communicate in such a way that their interests, not your desire to be right or to be heard or to be proved right or to prove someone else wrong, that's not your motivation. Your motivation is the interest of the other person. I just want to communicate in a way that you'll hear this, that the Lord can begin to work in your life again. So kindness is sacrificial, and yes, it's difficult, but it's not passive. And so what do we do? We leave this place. How do we continue to, well, what's one thing that we can do? And guys, I wrestled with this. I'm sitting here writing my sermon this week, and I'm like, I, I wish I could give you two or three different things, and you'd apply these three different things to your life, and it would be great. But I just kept coming back to this one thought when it came to kindness. This one idea just kept coming back to my mind over and over and over again. And it was this. Keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate kindness. Just love other people. Put their interests above your own. Yeah, when it's hard and difficult and you have to say really difficult things, say it in a way that they're going to hear it, not just so that you can say it. Care about them and don't go into it expecting them to reciprocate it or for it to go well. Go into it knowing that I might be hurt, but I still have to be kind. There's this story about John the Apostle who wrote in your New Testament. He's one of the followers of Jesus. And uh, toward the end of his life, he was really frail and fragile. And the Bible translator, uh, first century Bible translator Jerome, writes about this. He says that John was so frail and weak, they had to pick him up and carry him to church. And they'd, they'd put him in front of the church. And then he wouldn't preach these long sermons. He would just say this simple line. He would say, dear children, love one another, love one another, love one another. That's what he said week after week. And, and his disciples, they got a little bit frustrated, as many of you might get frustrated, though you might not. You might say, if that's all Rob said, we're going to Cracker Barrel. Uh, but you might be happier that way. I don't know. But John, every week, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Finally, his disciples are like, hey, what's going on? Uh, we we want to hear more. And John said, if you'd actually been loving one another, that would be enough. Because that was the Lord's primary command. Love one another. In a room like this, there's relationships that are messy. There's marriages that are, like, have a lot of friction and difficulty. There's friendships that have been hurt by the past. The beautiful thing about grace is that it can stop now. And you can start fresh. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made in the past. It doesn't matter how messy you've created, uh, what kind of a mess you've created in the relationship. Because of Jesus, everything can change and it can be a new day and you can begin to display the kindness that the Father has displayed to you in all of your relationships. You just have to be willing to let him work in you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Because of grace, God will forgive you. None of you has done something so bad that God has disqualified you from being used by him. He is crazy about you. And so to that hurting marriage and that hurting friendship and that difficult parenting relationship, if I could encourage you with one thing as we close out, just one, one thing of encouragement, here's what I would say to you. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look, not, look out not only for their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you. Thank you for going first. God, thank you that you loved us so much that you let Jesus come and live the life that we couldn't live. And he, and he died 
the death that we deserve to die, and then he defeated death for us, that we might be reunited with you, that we might receive the Holy Spirit who would work through us as we love and display biblical kindness, Christ-like kindness to the world around us. Father, as we leave this place, may we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but because of our focus and attention on Jesus, may we consider others as more important than ourselves. May we be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.